And a number of clergy have written back and said, wow, this is amazing resource for me to use in preparing my sermons and my teaching. We've had lay people write back also saying, I didn't realize that there was such a connection. I thought that religion was one thing, ecology was another thing, and never did the two meet. But now I see that that actually ecological awareness is organic to the Bible. Uh, we've also organized 13 conferences over the past 10 years in Jerusalem and in seven cities in the U.S., including in New York City. We've received great feedback from faculty and deans of seminaries who attended those conferences about how it helped them deepen their appreciation for religion and ecology and teach more for emerging clergy on this topic. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. In the midst of several episodes touching on religious approaches to sustainability, I learned of today's guest's book, The Eco Bible, an ecological commentary on Genesis and Exodus. Rabbi Yonatan Neril founded and directs the International Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, including its Jewish Eco-Seminars branch. He wrote the book to shine new light on how the Hebrew Bible and great religious thinkers have urged human care and stewardship of nature for thousands of years as a central message of spiritual wisdom. He has spoken internationally on religion and the environment, including at the UN Environment Assembly, the Fez Climate Conscious Summit, the Parliament of World Religions, and the Pontifical Urban University. He organized 12 interfaith environmental conferences in Jerusalem, New York City, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, L.A., and elsewhere. On a personal note, my father is the person I know most knowledgeable and practicing about Judaism. Also, of all the people I know, probably most resistant to reconsidering his views on nature, pollution, and his polluting behavior. I was curious to what extent his religion compelled him to sticking to his old views, or if it was just himself. So I was very curious if talking to Yonatan would shed light on that. On a general note, my interest in religious approaches to sustainability is that the religious people I've spoken to who embrace acting on sustainability do it with a mood closer to mine, joy, community, connection, service, faith, as compared to the predominant environmentalist mood of obligation, chore, burden, even anger and self-righteousness. I hope working with people like Yonatan helps communities with that kind of approach. I hope it relieves them of their misery and brings them the same joy, community, and connection. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Yonatan Nereel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Glad to have you here. And a bit of a preface that when I learn about your book, so your book is The Eco Bible, Ecological Commentary on Genesis and Exodus. And it came at a time for listeners of my podcast will see that I didn't really touch on religion for a long time. And then I've done several episodes recently touching on religion, speaking with some evangelicals in America. And so when your book came in, I thought, oh, great, this is another perspective to bring to bear on, on something that's become very interesting to me. And I'm curious, on your side, I haven't seen a lot of literature like yours. And then I went to, I hope listeners will click on the link that I'll put up to your YouTube page, because you have a lot of videos and you're doing a lot of work. I wonder if I could start with where this began for you. Are you part of a larger community? Are you working on the forefront? Both, maybe. How did you get started? Sure. So I got started in Northern California. I grew up on an acre of land with an organic garden that I gardened with my mother. 
And I grew up going to a Jewish summer camp called Camp Tawanga near Yosemite, where I was first introduced to Judaism and ecology. And then studied environmental issues in college and uh, came to Israel and studied in a, in a yeshiva, Jewish learning center for about seven years, right? realized that Jewish teachings have deep things to say about ecological sustainability. So following that experience, I uh, started an organization called the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. And we revealed the connection between religion and ecology and mobilized faith communities to act. So, and, and in relation to your question, we do collaborate with a number of organizations. Uh, we have a Los Angeles Faith and Ecology Network, and we're collaborating with California Interfaith Power and Light to bring together clergy and green team leaders to promote environmental action. Now, when you said that you revealed that connection, was it obvious ahead of time or was it, because a big question for me is why now, or has it always been the case? Are you revealing something that has always been there and has been actively practiced? Or is it something that has been kind of put to the side and now people are realizing, oh, this is really important. When you say revealed, was it already there? Was it new? I think the connection is already there. And that's part of what we... Uh, are doing with with Eco Bible here, as as you mentioned, uh, Volume One, an ecological commentary on Genesis and Exodus. And we're showing that there are hundreds of verses in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, that, that relate to ecological sustainability. And it's when we use the word reveal, the intention is that there are deep teachings on ecological sustainability within the Bible. However, in our current time, a lot of Religious people and, and clergy don't see those connections. So what we're revealing is that sages from the past several thousand years have been speaking on this topic, and uh, it's about bringing more awareness to it in our current time, especially in light of the mounting ecological challenges. So it's it's a long time tradition that hasn't really been on the forefront, and you're trying to show, look, it's been there. Have we been paying attention to it? Have we been acting on it, and not really? We're not really acting on it? That's right. It's, you know, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God says to people uh, something that has been sort of a center of, of Jewish and, and Christian theology for many years. It's something that relates to dominion and to how we, how we you know, relate to God's creation. What is the role of people? God blessed them, the the human being, and said to them, be fertile and increase, fill the earth and master it and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. On the surface, it seems like these words give people license to run roughshod over creation. But at a deeper level, the the rabbis understand uh, that there's actually something about stewardship here. Rabbi Hanina interpreted this verse to say, if humankind is worthy, then God says you rule. While if humankind is not worthy, God says that the human being will be taken down or let others, meaning the animals, rule over people. And and with COVID, we see how a virus that emerged from an animal market in Wuhan has now spread around the world. And unless we live in good relationship with creation, with the animals and, and plants and trees that God created, we're not going to have a stable human society. And how does this translate into your life? I guess part of where I'm coming from is that a lot of people, I feel like they view acting environmentally, sustainably as like a burden. It's a chore. It's like, we have to do this, but we really don't want to. We really want steak, but we have to eat crickets, stuff like that. And 
what has made a religious approach very appealing to me so far, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same with you, is that when people who come at it from a religious perspective don't seem to have this burden chore aspect to it, it seems to be much more of like a fulfilling experience. When I hear from evangelicals, it's like, we have this gift. It's a wonderful gift. The best thing we can do is like really take care of it. And, and they have a joy in it, which matches my approach, though I'm not coming from the same perspective of like, I really enjoy it. I'm not, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. And I wonder if that also comes with you as well. Yes, definitely. There's, and Rabbi Nachman of Breslov said, uh, serve God with joy. The, the, the key to religious devotion is serving God with joy and also how we live ecologically, uh, bicycling with joy, composting with joy, eating uh, vegan foods with joy, stewarding God's creation, going into nature and enjoying the beauty of creation. All of this at its higher level, the uh, spirituality, which informs sustainability, is going to be about joy. And, and that's actually part of the deep uh, thing about, about faith-based sustainability is that if we access uh, religious teachings and, and live a more ecologically sustainable lifestyle, we will connect more to ourselves, to our families, to our communities, to God. We will bring more joy into our lives. We will live slower lives, more simplistic lives, but more fulfilling and more joyful lives. Ah, you sound a lot like me, or I sound a lot like you. I mean, some of the words that came up were that I say a lot, that I don't hear a lot. Sadly, I feel in most environmental stuff, you, you talked about service. You talked about stewardship. You use the word joy over and over again, which I use all the time. I think I heard you mention more time with family, slowing down, but more fulfillment. And maybe I'm missing it in when I hear about most like climate marches, most stuff coming from a non-religious perspective, it seems much more about like, we got to protest. We got, I agree with a lot of what they're saying and what they're doing. And it doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound like purposeful and meaningful. What you're saying does, if I'm hearing you right. I mean, look, you know, that, that's part of the challenge that we're facing now is that the, the scale of the ecological degradation is so vast and serious that that for those who are aware of what we're doing to, to, to God's creation, there's a certain level of heaviness, you know, to witness the pollution and climate change and biodiversity loss and plastic in the ocean. I went swimming with my wife and our two kids a couple of months ago in the Mediterranean, and, and we encountered plastic in a way that I'd never seen before in, in the oceans. And there's also, I think, a, a lot of people deal with a certain level of terror about the future, like that, that it seems like earth systems are hemorrhaging and that, you know, we're heading toward a very dangerous place. So, so I think that, that people are, on the one hand are dealing with that. And I, I think that this is something that religion can offer, which is hope. Uh, Rabbi Nachman said, never give up hope. And uh, the late chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's probably one of the most well-known rabbis, he said, hope is a human virtue but one with religious underpinnings. At its ultimate, is it is the belief that God is mindful of our aspirations with us in our fumbling efforts, that he has given us the means to save us from ourselves, that we are not wrong to dream, wish, and work for a better world. Hope is the knowledge that we can choose, that we can learn from our mistakes and act differently next time. So, you know, I, I think it's a, this is really a, a, an important part that religion can bring to the table 
is this aspect of hope and, and faith, faith in God that we're going to get through this, that it's going to be okay, that God is with us in this process. And at the same time, a realization that God has given us responsibility to change course, to live sustainably, and to draw on religious traditions to do that. So I'm hearing very solid confidence on your part, and it sounds like this permeates all of what you do in your life. I'm curious how this, how are you spreading it out and how is it being received on, I would expect some people like it, some people don't like it, I'm not sure. So we get different reception. We have... uh, the largest YouTube channel on religion and ecology, 270 videos. We got about 100,000 views in the past month. And we can receive some comments. Some people are angry. Some people disagree with our work. Some people have a, have a theology of abundance and a theology of materialism, that God blesses us with material wealth and that we can do with it as we wish. There's a, there's a theology of oil and of fossil fuels, that God has put fossil fuels into the world and therefore, we should use them. I counter that with a, a theology of stewardship that in, in Genesis 2.15, God said, the Bible says, and God placed the human being in the garden to serve it and conserve it. Uh, so therefore, just because fossil fuels are available to us doesn't mean that we should partake of them, uh, just like uh, not everyone should be you know, digging up uranium and making nuclear bombs. That's also not a, an appropriate path. Yeah, for most of... History since, or rather, the history since we've discovered and started using fossil fuels, I feel like the view on fossil fuels was all right, it's we can burn it. And I guess there's a bit of exhaust coming out the back, out of the tailpipe or out of the smokestack. And most of the time, we didn't really have to think about the exhaust. We didn't have to think about the unintended consequences. And it's very easy to, if you simply ignore the parts you don't like, everything's good. And to me, stewardship is also taking into account how my behavior affects others, even everything, not just the parts that I want, including the parts that I don't want. And to people who say, well, that's a burden. I say my connection to other people is among the most important parts of my life. And I, I connect more with someone far away for taking them into account than I have what I might give up in not profligately using whatever I want, not thinking about that. Yeah, that might, that might bring me some pleasure, but I, I just don't see how that how that pleasure can be more important than how my, how my behavior affects others, especially when it hurts them and they're helpless to prevent it. That to me is one of the great meaningful parts of life is that, that connection that, I mean, I'm not a father, but I feel like it's part of what we feel toward our children. It's like they're, they're helpless. And of course, that is one of the most important things. Although, sorry to go on a bit too long here, but before I felt that the reward of that responsibility, I would not have expected to feel as rewarding as it, as it does to you know, conserve energy here and know that I'm not hurting someone over there. So I, I think you're bringing up a very important issue, which is something that Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Buddhist teacher, calls interbeing, of feeling connected to other beings, both to human beings and to other sentient beings on this planet. When we feel connected to others, we care for them and we have concern. We might even love them. And, and therefore, out of this care and concern and love comes a desire not to want to harm them. And I feel like that's what you're pointing to is really a root issue here in the, the spiritual ecological crisis 
um, because the crisis we're facing is not a crisis of the bees and the birds or the trees and the toes. It's a crisis of the human being and how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. And, and so we essentially need to raise our level of soul awareness. According to the Jewish mystical teachings, the human being has many levels of soul, at least five levels. And, and our current society and consumer society is operating at the lowest level of soul. For us to live sustainably, we're going to need to raise our level of soul awareness. And when we do, that will then generate a greater care and concern for others. And, and so therefore, as you're saying, when, before someone buys a hamburger, for example, they will think, well, what, first of all, how is this going to feel to my body in you know, five minutes or one hour? And second of all, how does this feel to the cow from which it came? How does it feel to the rainforest on which that cow lived or that former rainforest? And how is this going to feel to the atmosphere? And, and when we think about all these different implications of our action, when we have a higher level of awareness, we will then come to realize, well, maybe this isn't the best thing. Maybe there's something else I can eat that would be more wholesome for me and for the earth. Yeah, it seems like not too much of a stretch to think that way. I don't think of myself as, I have not thought of myself as, how did you put it, to a higher level of soul awareness, although it doesn't sound too far off either. Well, the reason that I think it's it's a bit distant from current society is, is partly because there's an industry, the advertising industry, whose goal it is to help people, to convince people to buy things that will give them short-term pleasure, but which they don't really need. And the advertising industry is one of the engines of the current economic system. And so therefore, they're giving this, this key message to, you know, Nestle's motto is, uh, makes me happy. Uh, McDonald's, I'm loving it. Uh, and these messages are very strong. Now, the, the role of religion is really to, to offer a different message, which is care, love your neighbor as yourself. Do not do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. And so therefore, this is why I believe that, that religion is key to, a, to coming to live sustainably, because these messages of moderating consumption, thinking long term, caring for the other, are messages that are central to religion and, and which only religion is going to bring them out. And can you tell me some examples of, of how this is borne out? And have you, I mean, you're getting your message out there. You've been doing it for some time. And can you give some stories about how people have responded? Ideally, I'm thinking of, of how it's been receptive and, and how people have come back and said, hey, this really affected me, if, if that's happened. Yes, it has. We've mailed copies of Eco Bible to hundreds of clergy in the U.S. and England and Southern Africa and Israel. And a number of clergy have written back and said, wow, this is an amazing resource for me to use in preparing my sermons uh, and my teaching. We've had lay people write back also saying, I didn't realize that there was such a connection. I thought that religion was one thing, ecology was another thing, and never did the two meet. But now I see that, that actually ecological awareness is organic to the Bible uh, we've also organized 13 conferences over the past 10 years in Jerusalem and in seven cities in the U.S., including in New York City. And we've received great feedback from faculty and deans of seminaries who attended those conferences about how it helped them really deepen their appreciation for religion and ecology and, and teach more for emerging clergy on this topic. So is that a strategy is, is kind of top down is to work with the well, no, because the videos are going more 
I'm guessing that there's a bit of top down of, of reaching people at the centers of community to give them tools to bring out this message that they might not have been so aware of. And then also to reach everyone through videos. Is that, is that about right? Or That's right. We're, we're really working at multiple levels in terms of, of thought leadership through social media and videos and podcasts and, and blogs and articles. Um, but we're also trying to work with religious institutions. Uh, religion is the biggest NGO in the world. There are uh, millions of clergy in the world, and, and most of them don't, talk, don't teach or preach on religion and ecology. So therefore, we have our work cut out for us, and they, they train in religious seminaries and theological schools, divinity schools, rabbinical schools, madrasas, and ashrams. So, so we're trying to encourage the institutions that train religious clergy to engage more fully on this topic of religion and ecology. How about at the other end of, of the people watching videos to get feedback from people, lay people responding? We do. We do receive comments uh, on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. And the comments are mixed. We have people who, as I said, who are very skeptical that there is such a connection uh, and they think that we're trying to hijack religion. And we receive comments from people who are saying, wow, this is, this is great that, that here we have some of the heavy hitters in, in religion who are speaking about this issue. You know, Pope Francis has come out with his encyclical Laudato Si on care for our common home. The ecumenical patriarch of the Orthodox Church, Bartholomew I, has been talking and writing about this for 30 years. The Dalai Lama has made this a key part of his work. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, another Buddhist religious figure, uh, many swamis in India, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi David Rosen. You know, a lot of the heavy hitters of religion are saying this is the key issue that we need to focus on. And together with environmental scientists who are saying the same thing, it's hard to deny that, that, this is, that we need to address these issues. I'm feeling both hopeful and also, I mean, how do you feel? You, you talked about hope at the beginning and joy, um, amongst joy and things like that. At the same time, there's all these problems. I, this is a big question everybody faces is, how do you feel? I have to say that there's another message that I think um, Churchill said, it's really bad. I'm not speaking like him, but you know, it's going to get worse and we're all going to, it's going to be really difficult for a lot of people. And that's also big to me, part of an important message is that we have to realize as bad as it is now, it's, it's going to keep, as far as I can tell, it's going to keep getting worse for a while before we can really, things start turning around. And is that something you also feel? Is that something that is part of your message as well? Yes. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sober eyed about what environmental scientists are telling us about what we're doing to planet earth. And the ice caps are melting. Sea levels are rising. Hurricanes are intensifying. Deserts are expanding. And at the same time, consciousness is shifting. And I believe this is really an evolutionary moment. That what we're facing now uh, in this evolutionary moment is calling on humanity to reach different levels than we've currently been operating on. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate test for humanity in, our, in, our, in the long arch of human history. You know, going back a million years, for example, when people came to North America over the, the Bering Straits, the land bridge there, over a relatively short period, people extincted a lot of the large mammals, the woolly mammoth, saber-toothed cat, etc. And, and so humanity has been causing environmental impacts for tens of thousands of years. However, in the past several decades, 
these impacts have anticipated to a scale that our ancestors couldn't have imagined. One of my teachers says that uh, we're living in times that our ancestors dreamed about for thousands of years in, in the sense of that we're facing a crisis. If we, if we continue on our current path, the future is indeed bleak for us and all, fifth, and all 8 million species on this planet. However, the ecological crisis is messaging to us to change course. And so in that sense, it's an opportunity. The, as, as you know, the character in Chinese for uh, crisis is the same character as opportunity. And in uh, and the word opportunity in Latin means ab portis, toward a port. So, you know, it's like the Titanic. If they, instead of heading toward the iceberg, they had instead turned around and, and gone to a port to find safe harbor. So that's, that's the, the moment that we're in. And, and that's where where spirituality can help to, to shift the balance and to make us live more sustainably. Yeah, it's, I hope this message gets out more. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'd also like to get a little more personal. When you think of the environment, what do you think about? What motivates you to act? I mean, are there memories? You know, when you think about the environment, what do you think about? Well, my greatest experiences uh, in nature have been in Yosemite National Park and, and around it, camping, hiking. I remember when I was a, a kid, I was about 10 years old, we went on a backpacking trip in my camp at Camp Chawanga, a uh, backpacking trip in Yosemite, and, and the wilderness leader had us do a lone sit. Uh, which for those who, who aren't familiar with the term means that we sat alone in nature for 30 minutes. Each, each of the 10 campers chose a spot and we didn't, we weren't near other kids and we sat alone and we were just there in nature, listening, breathing, sitting on the earth, uh, connecting to God in nature. And, and that was a, a significant experience for me. Uh, I think about my current lifestyle of how I, I try to go into nature. And at the same time, I spend a lot of time in front of screens, uh, as do many people living today. As we're doing now, yeah. Uh, and that's a shift that, that, you know, if you look at our grandparents and our great-grandparents, they spent a lot more time in, you know, not in front of screens because our, our great-grandparents didn't have screens. Uh, so the world has shifted tremendously. Um, at the same time, I'm trying to use the tools of technology, as I said, YouTube and Facebook and blog posts to raise awareness about these issues. I'm curious to go back to, you described sitting in nature at the lone sit. What were the emotions that you felt? I mean, you described the situation. You are presumably, if, if it's Yosemite, I'm guessing there's trees around. You can't see anyone or hear anyone. I guess you're far enough away. What did it feel like, if you remember? Yeah, I do remember. To sit alone in nature there, it felt really 
soothing, calming. I felt connected to God. I felt the the grandness of God uh, by seeing the, the beauty in nature. I felt my own body. I felt the way that the my body felt sitting on a rock and, and on the dirt. I felt a, a deep level of calmness. Those are some of the things that I felt. Given that soothing calmness connected to God, I'm guessing that the experience of being in front of it, clicking through YouTube and stuff is not quite the same. That's correct. It's a good question of, you know, to what extent can videos help us to develop ecological awareness? Uh, Or do we really just need to go into nature in order to regenerate and rejuvenate uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure, although one of my teachers said that, you know, if you look at the past couple hundred years, we've seen this incredible shift and in even the past couple decades of where someone can make a video and billions of people can watch it. And I mean, if you look at the most popular videos on, on YouTube, that they're mostly you know, music videos with uh, scantily dressed women as part of them. So there's a certain level of where humanity's consciousness is as I said, in these lower places, but there's also this potential to use videos and technology and Zoom to raise our consciousness. Uh, And that's what we're trying to do with these videos. Going back to the feelings of the calmness that connected to God, the, the feeling that you had there, I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on those feelings, on that connection. And now most people, when they hear this, they, they hear something that I didn't ask, which is to a lot of people think, what's the most important thing I can do? Or what does the New York Times say that I'm supposed to do about the environment? And it's fine if it affects the world, but it's really to act on those feelings, to bring something of that, of what the environment means to you, to do something on that. And with a couple of constraints, one is that something you're not already doing, something that you personally do yourself with your own hands or your own body, and something that has some physical effect. I work with a lot of people and they say, a lot of leaders, they're like, oh, I'm going to get my team to do this. Fine, have the team do something, do something yourself as well. And sometimes people say, well, I'll read or I'll learn. That's important, but take the next step to acting. And it doesn't have to be big. It can be big. It doesn't have to be small. It can be small. But something that you could do to act on those feelings, to, to either recreate them or bring them back or to, I'm not sure. It would be up to you to come up with something. I think one thing I could do would be to go into nature every day. It's something that I, I'd like to do, and actually, uh, we live in Jerusalem, and at the same time, I'm, we live about five minutes from a park. So, you know, it's not, it's not the back country of Yosemite, but it's an urban park, and since we don't own a car, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to drive into nature, but I can walk five minutes from where we live and go into a park with trees uh, and, and sit in nature. And that's, that's something that I'd like to do. I'd like to go into nature every day, to sit on the ground, to put my body on the earth, and to uh, have that level of, of reconnection every day. That's, that's something I aspire toward. It's funny, as you're saying this, it, it, it's something that up until recently, everyone couldn't help but do, it was automatic, like you couldn't help but be in nature. I mean, not long ago, there was very little pavement in the world at all. You know, and you were talking about millions of years of, of I, I don't know, humans have been around, I guess, homo sapiens for maybe a couple hundred thousand years. And now, yeah, on the one hand, it sounds so simple. On the other hand, it sounds so profound. So I propose making it a SMART goal. That is to say specific measure. I don't know if you know the acronym, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. 
because I'd love to hear what your experience was like. And I wonder, I think you said do it for a couple minutes a day. That sounds pretty specific. I wonder how long you'd have to do it before, if, if you're willing to share what the experience was like, that you could say, I've done this enough that I can tell you what the experience was like. Well, I can tell you that I, I went outside earlier today with my daughter. Uh, she went on her scooter and I was walking and we, we took a walk into the park. And that was very uplifting for me. Uh, it was also great to strengthen my connection with my daughter and, and she enjoyed going out. Uh, you know, for the past 10 months with COVID, we've spent more time in our houses, in our, in our apartment than, than we have prior to this. So that's, you know, that's been a challenge on, on the one hand, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to isolate more from other people. On the other hand, we're, we're spending a lot of time uh, together. And so to go out today with my daughter into the park and walk amidst the trees, as I said, was, was uplifting and, and rejuvenating for me. Well, I'm thinking also, if you were to do it every day, I think you were saying, talking about doing it every day. So if you did it every day for a certain period of time, I think that you would get I'd be curious to hear what the experience would be like. A lot of people have done things like this on, on my podcast. Everyone's situation is unique. And things that come up are, you know, sometimes it's raining, sometimes you're busy. And how people handle these things. I think a lot of people at home, a lot of people out there say, oh, just, you know, switch to a vegan diet or do this. Like they, they say stuff that the actual practice of it is different than just saying, oh, just do this. You know, what do you do when you're really busy? What do you do when someone's visiting and you can't get away? Or And then I think people speculate what it will actually be like. And when it, the actual experience is different than what they expect it to be, I predict it will be both more challenging at times, but also more rewarding than you expect. And I find that only the actual experience is the actual experience. And so I'd love to hear how it goes I suspect if you did it once or twice, it wouldn't give you quite the feeling, but you probably don't need a whole year of it to figure out, to be able to talk about how it went. And I'd love to bring to my audience your experience. Sure. So maybe on a, on a future session, we could, uh, we could talk about that. I, I understand that doing something 40 times in a row for 40 days uh, is a way of making it into a habit, into a new habit. So as you're saying, well, if, I want to go into nature, but it's raining that day. It's cold and raining. So I would imagine that I would need to bring an umbrella and, uh, and go despite that. And it would be a different experience in the rain. Or if I'm really busy, then I would have to make a commitment that I'm going to do this, even if it's for a short period of time, um, that this is, this is important enough for me to make it part of my daily habit. So would you begin to come back in 40 days, roughly, you know, give or take a few days to, to share how that experience went? I'd be happy to. Okay. And uh, I hope it doesn't feel like a burden. It doesn't feel like a burden, although a new commitment can be <laughs> a little bit heavy just in light of the, the busy lives that, that I and others live. But I also think, you know, part of the challenge that we're facing is that I and others live faster lives than is healthy for humanity and for the earth. And that's part of the, the challenge that we're facing. And so, you know, the, the slow movement began about 35 years ago in Italy, slow food, slow tourism, slow travel. Uh, and so this practice of, of going into a park, into nature is also a practice of slowing down. So I'm part of Slow Food USA. I really like slow and 
next time you come through New York, come by for my famous no packaging vegan stew, which is the no packaging means it's all from the farmer's markets and the CSAs. And so it's really local stuff and very delicious. And so I want to make sure also that, that it's not asking too much. I, if, I haven't walked you into something that is a bird, like you couldn't do. If it is, we could do it every other day or make it smaller or something like that. But if it does fit, then I'd love to hear how it goes. No, I think it's realistic. I bike to work and I bike through a park. So it's just a question of my getting off my bike and spending some time there in the park. Or, or as I said, going to the park that, that's near where I live. I'm oftentimes surprised when I go into nature and I try to go hiking with my son about once a month, that when we go into the, the trails that are near Jerusalem, that we, we see almost no people on those trails. So it's a repair that I'd like to make in my own life, spending more time in nature, which I think is also part of the, the deeper repair for humanity in, in the current time. I'm surprised. I think of you as living in a place that's very densely populated. And so I thought you were going to say, you always see people on the paths because there must be so many people. Well, in the, in the trailheads that are adjacent to Jerusalem, there are, except on you know, national holidays when people are, are going out and about there, uh, there tend to be very few people that we see on the trails. Huh. I'm, I wonder if, if this gets out, if you have a great time and it gets out, then I kind of hope I ruin your solitude and get lots of people out on the trails enjoying that. More. Yes. It'd also be great for you know, more people to get out, but this is the power today of screens and of urban living that uh, I maybe I, I see in my own life, you know, if I'm working and the, the, the power of a screen to keep me looking at the screen and keep me doing things on that screen, whether it's a, a computer screen or a smartphone screen. This is, I'm making a mental note to talk to you about this when we, when we talk again in roughly 40 days that I'll be curious to how, it's one thing to say, don't go, don't use the screen so much. It's another thing to say, go to the forest. It's a more, to me, more positive, constructive message. It's what's happened in my life is that as I've, avoiding packaged food was one of big, a challenge I gave myself, a temporary challenge. And when I gave myself the challenge, all I knew was packaged food. So all I could think of was what I was missing. Now it's easy to say, okay, no Twinkies, but I wasn't eating Twinkies. I was eating pretty healthy already, but I didn't know how delicious the food could be, what relationships, when I would go to the, consistently to the same farmers at the stands and get to know them. And they give me free food because of the relationship that comes out of it. I didn't know what was on the other side. I didn't know what I was missing. And I could only say what I did have that I thought I would miss, but actually I don't miss at all. I mean, I do spend a lot of time in front of the screen, but I'm thinking more about food or flying of that I've I thought I was giving something up and it's the opposite. It's those things were, well, I don't want to go into it too much, but you described a world, a set of values maybe that, that the advertising industry and a lot of, I don't know, our global economic system, I don't know what to call it. You know, we've been inculcated, like this is how things are. And as long as I don't question it, I think they're describing reality, but it's just one way of looking at things. Changing our behavior, I think, gives access to another way of looking at things. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I haven't been on an airplane in over a year. And uh, like many people, I, I don't enjoy, you know, the process of air travel. It, you know, to go door to door from here to New York takes about 20 hours. And in relation to what you were saying about uh, going no packaging, after, after this experience a couple of months ago, 
of swimming with so much plastic in the ocean, uh, I decided to not use takeaway dishes at restaurants uh, or for takeaway food. So when I go to lunch near my office, I bring my own container and currently only takeaway is available in Jerusalem because of the pandemic. And I go to places that will accept my container and they'll put the food in my container. And, and then I, so I have a, a net zero packaging for my lunch. And I've found in that process that, that occasionally the, the workers who prepare the food and, and, and give the food, they will be resistant to that. But, but many of the workers are actually quite grateful for my doing so, not because it saves them, you know, 25 cents on the packaging or 50 cents, but, but because they also have ecological values. And, and to see, you know, a customer come in and say that I'm going to use my own container that to them is, you know, is meaningful and something that they appreciate. Yeah. When I talk to people about doing something like that, they're like, oh, you can't do that. Regulations, blah, blah, blah. But when you actually do it, there's a human connection and that overrides all this other like objection stuff. It, I feel like someone, maybe there's, so people have heard me a lot. They, they've heard me say stuff like this before, but when you're addicted and, and someone says to stop it, you, you, you see the withdrawal, but you don't see past the withdrawal of like the withdrawal is like, oh, I'm going to get the shakes or something like that. But past that is connecting with other people, community, joy. And it's hard to see it when you think of what you're giving up. But what, what's there is like much more rewarding and fulfilling. All the things that you talked about that I commented on before. But you have to do it. I feel like if you imagine it, you won't really get, you can't imagine the potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a joy to, ecological living at, at a deeper level is a joy. and. Part of the part of the challenging for for you know the, those folks who are trying to promote this more ecological lifestyle is revealing the joy in in changing how we live. Uh, it's not just about you know laying off the, the Cheetos and the airplane travel. It's also about reclaiming our own sense of place, enjoying food more, enjoying more time with our family and our local community and local nature sites. That's, that's something I've appreciated, you know, even since the pandemic started is I've come to see more in Jerusalem and, and more even, you know, in the, in the blocks, in the, you know, one mile radius of where I've been for most of the past nine months uh, to just see things here that I never noticed before. I, there's, a, there's a place I go to that, that looks, overlooks the old city walls. And just a few days ago, I noticed that there's a rose garden like right there. I'd never noticed that there are there are these rose bushes, and like and, and it just like it just like opened my eyes. I mean, maybe because they were blooming now, and they weren't blooming before. But I was like, wow, like this existed, but I never saw it before. And it, and I've been coming here for a long time. Let's start here next time because I predict that the smile that you just had and the the that discovery, I think, I think will increase more than you expect. Can't be sure. I hope so. May, may God bless us. So. I'd like to wrap up asking, is there anything I, I didn't think to ask that I should have or anything worth bringing up or any message you want to give directly to listeners? You know, I would just say that uh, I just tell a story that the Nobel laureate Tony Morrison told of a young boy who comes to an elder woman with a bird in his hands. And he asks her, is the bird in my hands alive or dead? And she realizes that the boy is playing a trick on her because if she says that the bird is dead, he'll open his hands and the bird will fly away. 
And if she says the bird is alive, he'll close his hands and crush the bird. And either way, she's going to be wrong. He's got her coming and going. So she looks at the boy in the eyes and she says to him, I don't know whether the bird in your hands is alive or dead. All I know is that the life of the bird is in your hands. And that's true with, our, with us today, our, our own life and happiness. We have control and agency over how we live and how we live impacts others. And we have a choice about the uh, a level of life and, and the extent to which Earth is thriving for the next generation. I appreciate that last message. And, and I look forward to picking up where we at this point next time. Yonatan Nereel, thank you very much. Welcome. Thank you, Joshua. I believe I can now count one more religion where I know people enthusiastically embracing living sustainably. As an aside, so I guess it's just my dad, not the religion. More importantly, Yonatan presented another approach full of joy, community, connection, service, and faith. I can't say others all approach it like a chore or burden, like something we have to do but really don't want to. But I sure see that approach dominate in the media and people talking to me. Call me crazy, but I like Yonatan's mood more. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.